0: running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linocom slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura, Hey, everybody. David Richards. Hey, hey. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about standards versus reality. And I kind of love the the idea, right? It's like, how realistic is it to expect all these standards?
1: (laughs) Especially for somebody like me who doesn't like any standards usually.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, Well, before the show, uh, Dave pointed out, you know, because I was like, well, I don't have... He said something about, you know, his standards. And I was like, I, yeah, I don't have standards either. And he's like, well, number one, make it work. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much how I operate in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> does it run? You know, does it make money? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't think about it much beyond that. Should I be?
2: Uh, you know, it's such a t- touchy subject uh, for a lot of people, I think, because, you know you have some people who say, you know, use tabs and not spaces. Other people say use spaces, not tabs, you know, and that's getting more over to just the um, appearance of the code. But if you're, if you're having to do code reviews and read the code online on GitHub, GitLab or whatever, then appearance does have some play into it. And I think that that's where it kind of starts because, you know, I was doing a code review the other day, and they were using tabs, I'm like, that's not good. Like, it, it looks <laughs> horrible on my screen. Like, why are you using spaces? And it, it just kind of caught, caught myself off guard because I was like, you know what? That's their style, and it's their project. They can do it however they want. You know, uh, it, it shouldn't matter. But I think that that's where a lot of the controversy comes in is because we have our own uh, family of origin, if you will. And what I mean by that is our background on how we grew up coding or how we learned coding and the practices that we fell into. Maybe our employer or mentor had their own practices that we adopted. And so we kind of have taken these set of standards as truths. Uh, And from that, we then judge or we condemn others for breaking those standards that we have created for ourselves. And while it's not right or wrong, per se, to say that, hey, you have these standards, they're different than mine, and that's okay, as long as we are accomplishing a common goal. I think that it gets into a bit more of an issue when we're talking about peer programming, where you have multiple people working on the same project, then you have to conform as a team to a set of standards so that you're not blindsided every time you open up a separate file or something.
0: I I mean, I, under, I I agree with you. I wonder, though, a little bit, you know, taking taking it to the next level, you know, we have team projects and, yeah, generally, I mean, I've been on teams as large as 10 developers. I know there are larger teams out there. But, you know, and if, if, if you can reduce the communication load, I mean, that, that's where a lot of these standards come in, right? It's I don't have to think about how this works. It all just formats nicely into my editor or my uh, IDE, and it just works, right? And so that's nice. But what about community projects where you have such a disparate set of people coming in and working on it? Um, you know, do we have community standards? or is it the same deal right that team sets the standard for that project and so if i contribute to two different open source projects i may wind up working with two different sets of standards
1: well i like that because like like dave was saying you know these standards come from somewhere you know and and i bet that a lot of this is you know i mean it's maybe a little less about the standard of of what it looks like on the screen and more about Um, you know, the structure that holds the team and the project together, Mm -hmm. you know, that if I can jump on a project and contribute and not slow anybody else down, I, I don't know if I should admit this publicly, but (laughs) I joined a project once and um, we had a standard for um, some documentation that was in line that was auto generated. And I jumped on a very large project and my first commit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was I, I forced the standard on everybody, which was like 5,000 lines of code or 5,000 files were changed and oh, probably 20. No, didn't. I did. Oh, I did man. this terribly. <laughs> and I'm like, why did you do that? Like, well, it's cleaner, right? And I didn't even talk to anybody about it. And people were nice enough that they said, okay, fine, it's not terrible. But it was a bad idea. Oh, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. That's rough. I mean, you know, and, and
0: I've seen this on, on, you know, sort of private company repos too, right? Somebody decides that all the JavaScript has to be indented in four spaces instead of two. And it, if, if that all goes into its own commit, okay, maybe. But then, you know, if you pull that commit out and merge stuff from the future, it, it gets messy really fast.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes it's it's crazy because these kinds of these kinds of standards are, are really asking the question, who's the boss? You know, if I can enforce this on the whole team, then I get to assert at least some sort of tacit control or, or leadership. And that maybe isn't useful for the project, delivering something worthwhile, getting it to work and making money.
2: Yeah, and you know, I think there's also the issue of the um the old standards that were set when we were young, and then just never change. Like, I mean, even in the Ruby Linter, they still have the 80 character uh, limit for the rows. I'm like, no. Like, I have a 4K monitor. I have a 1440p monitor. My laptop has great resolution that can scale back. Like, I don't want to have to have just like a quarter of my screen be the code and stuff. So I think that, uh we also run into issues where there has been old standards that are just commonly known and commonly accepted but no one's ever challenged them in the past 20 years or something so like i have very few lines of code that are uh hit hit the 80 characters if it needs to be more sometimes for readability i will you know make it a multi-line uh method you know if i have some long method names or whatever the case. But I think that, you know, that's the other half of the issue is we're not challenging old standards based on current technology. Oh,
1: yeah. And I, I get away with a lot of that because, I mean, in the culture of software, I think that, like, I, I cut my te- teeth a lot of years ago writing C code. So a lot of the standards were to make C run. That has nothing to do with things we're writing today. But I'll train somebody up new, and they just kind of accept whatever I tell them. And I don't think usually about what I'm telling them. So things like, oh, yeah, just do it this way. And, yeah, maybe it's a bad idea.
0: Yeah, Dave, David's code is uh, riddled with uh, structs.
1: <laughs> you're not you're not making that up.
0: <laughs> I was, but if but, you it's know, true, it's even funnier.
1: It's true. I've removed a lot of structs from my code. Sometimes I think, what what am I doing? It's no. <laughs> I haven't learned anything new in the last 20 years. There Look, what can I say? <laughs>
0: yeah, but I agree. I mean Dave's point, you're right, for the, the eighty lines of code. Um, if I'm working on my laptop, I don't want to squint at it that much. So 80 line or 80 characters wide is kind of you know it's kind of nice sometimes. Or if I want to split the screen, right? So I'm using Emacs and I split it vertical or horizontal. I have a line down the middle with two buffers on either side. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and so 80 characters is you know hitting that limit. It, it makes it wrap. Um, but the flip side of it is is that um, you know, yeah, it's not necessarily a major issue. And I can change the font size and still read it fine on most of the monitors. It's only when I'm traveling or, you know, really stuck on my laptop that it matters. So if if that's not generally my programming experience, then it may not matter. And, and challenging that, right? So you may have a whole team of people that are working on uh, ginormous IMAX or 4K screens. And yeah, so for that team, I mean, that limitation is kind of silly but at the same time you know it's it's yeah it's how are we thinking about these problems and is there a better way to do it and and this is one of the things i really like about agile development i don't know if we call it out often enough is that agile development is you know where you sit down and you look at your process and you say what can we do better and you try new things and you figure out what makes the process better, and you evolve, and that's what makes it agile. And, uh, you know, so yeah, so okay, well, let's try it without the 80 character limits, see what happens. Oh, well, it turned out it was really painful, so we're going to switch back. Or maybe, oh, it didn't matter, so why bother worrying about it? Because all of these different standards are overhead, right, to writing the code. I mean, it's not just a okay, well, we all communicate well about how the code needs to look or how it needs to go together or how we architect systems or any of this stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're short-circuiting uh, communication there, right? We're, we're all on the same page about a lot of this stuff. That's what standards do for you. But the rules. They're overhead. They're things that you have to think about while you write your code. And so if you can remove that mental burden, maybe you can move a little faster, write a little bit better code.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think that you've definitely touched on some good points there, and that almost segues into the architecture of your application. You know, you have your standard, you know, if we're talking Rails, you have your standard MVC uh, project, but then you have something that goes a bit outside of scope of those, like a decorator or a service object or something else, whether it's a background job. And those really don't fit into the MVC structure. So what do you do from there? For a lot of my projects, you know, I have the standard uh, model folder, controller folder, views folder, but then also have uh, the jobs, services, decorators, uh, a lot of other things where I've kind of containerized different uh, business logic into their own little subspace. So I think that um, some of the standards, you know, if we were to stick to the core MVC, it's like, well, if you have something that's a class, it needs to go into the models folder. Well, for me, I don't like that kind of thinking because my models are reserved for anything that has a persistent storage, you know, that writes to the database. You know, I might have a concerns file, which is a includes or inheritance for something else. But for the most part, Anything that gets stored on the database goes into my model's folder that class does, and anything that doesn't, whether it is a um something else something you know a different class a service object or whatever, then I'll find a different place for it to go
0: i think I think that's interesting. One thing that I wonder about though too you know going into rails is we make the distinction right it it persists to the database but uh, the flip side of that is is that we also tend to mix a lot of other functionality into our models, or at least a lot of people do. And so um, maybe the database distinction isn't the most important distinction on those classes, even though they inherit from Active Record. And so, I mean, even then, it's, okay, so are these models or are they something else? Or do we just use the models for persistence and then use other uh, functionality and value objects to, to build things on top of that. You know, and those are standards that I've seen people argue about. And so, I mean, even then, you know, uh, breaking out of MVC for like uploaders and and uh, jobs and things is one thing, but even then, you know, what we traditionally think of as a model, you know, do we, do we set a standard around that so that we even think about that differently and don't define things specifically as models?
1: Well, I, I like how this um, shows us that you know, sometimes a standard is a a stand in for I don't have to think about it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we'll talk about it as as what's the good idea when it's time to engage or how do we really want to architect our, our project. But then at the same time, it's also acting as a yes, but it's handled or I know where to look or it'll work consistently, you know, that it should scale about the same and, and test about the same and, and, and work about the same as everything else. So that does have a stand-in, even if I don't have the right idea or if I accept somebody else's best idea, even though I don't like it, sometimes it's just I don't want to think about that. Let me do something else.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, for a long time, you know, this a few years ago, they said uh, skinny controller fat models. You know, that was kind of like this lingo we saying that people had where your controllers should not be really big they should be real small not many lines of code but you should put all that business logic into your models so the models was just a dumping ground for logic and while that didn't (laughs) yeah and uh for small models i still do that Mm-hmm. You know, models that don't have a lot of business logic, you know, they are literally just storing information. I'm um, recalling the information. They might may have a couple of validations, they might have a couple of scopes, they might have a couple of uh, instance methods. Mm-hmm. But anything beyond that, where it starts getting much, much more complicated, to where it's five, six hundred lines of code, it needs to get extracted. That file needs to get refactored because if you go back in there a few weeks later, you're completely lost. You don't know what ties to what. You don't know where to look for something. Yeah, you can do a control find and find kind of the area that you need to look at, but you don't know what else you're going to affect. And tests are good, and they're going to get you some amount of coverage, but the ramp up time to actually fix the problem or changing that feature, you can't fix without refactoring.
0: And Dave, you're giving us kind of this reality check, right? So how do you handle that um, on a routine basis? I mean, do you have rules for that? Is there a standard for that? Or is it just kind of a, oh, this feels gross. I'm going to ungross it.
2: (laughs) I think it's situational. So uh, in a lot of my projects that I do, I use Search Kick and Elasticsearch. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a lot of validations on the models. And I also have a lot of associations. And each one of those separately are 50, 60 lines of code. And in the model, that just gets overwhelming sometimes. So the first thing I'll do is to just, let's try to get the best bang for the buck, reduce the size of that model, so I can actually get in there and actually read what's going on. So I'll move those over into a separate folder So for like a user's model, I'll create a user's folder. I'll dump that into the concerns of the model's directory. And then I would just include, uh, you know, I'll create a file called validations under that user's folder. I'll create one called search kick. I'll create one called associations. Then I'll just include those in the actual user.rb model. And while that doesn't actually solve a problem per se, as far as extracting or refactoring the code it does extract it to where the file is much smaller it's going to be easier for me to read and if i'm consistent then if i need to go look at validations or something i know where to go look because i have a convention of my naming structure and it should be clear to other developers as well who reads uh, who has has a look at that file
1: you know, this is reminding me of a, a conference I attended years ago where we were talking about exactly this on a user's model. And some people were really upset with that solution. And they tended to be managers or owners of companies that were upset. And the people that were writing the code tended to feel like, hey, that solved my problem. And, and ended up into a kind of an interesting conversation where I started to see there's this difference between kind of the administrative perspective and the operative perspective mm-hmm. that the person closest to the code they i think the person closest to the code usually should win unless there's a really good reason to to hand control over to somebody further away so if it, if you're going to maintain it or test it or build the next feature your 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 vote counts more than than somebody who just has to to pay the salary <laughs> even yeah, though agree. paying the salary is not a small thing
0: well, yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, basically the levels of efficiency you get out of that, right? And, you know, so the person who has to deal with, with it most often is going to be the person that benefits most from the structure. I mean, that just makes a lot of sense. One question that I'm wondering about though, with, with something like this is, um, how do you, how do you actually manage a lot of this, um, you know, this complexity that you're adding in as far as file structure goes. So I guess the question that I'm really driving at is, uh, I'm wondering here, um, you know, this is something that you want to do consistently across your app, right? When, when things get, get to a certain level of consistency, you want to move it up or move it out to these other responsibilities, these other files, these other classes, however you think about that. So as you're doing that, I mean, how do you enforce that? You know, how do you how do you push it around? You know, we talked a lot about code look and feel and things like that. And you have things like RuboCop and and uh, Ruby linters that that will do a lot of that stuff, but when you're talking about this kind of structure, is there a way to enforce it? Is there a way to kind of raise the flag and say, hey, this file is too big, this class is too
1: long? Uh stuff like that. Or should you? So for me, my, I, I think the best I have is a rule of thumb. But what I do and what I train people to do is that if, if it's hard to test, it's time to move it. And so if it's getting really complicated in there, things start getting harder to test. So there's a practical reason to move it. And um, so I'll usually start with here's a basic Rails app, say, on a Rails project. And then here are my models with some business logic. And that's usually where things get complicated. And so then I'll pull... Um, some of the logic out of that, either in concerns or service objects. And then as they get to be too many, I do what Dave does and I'll, I'll create a directory around Mm -hmm. groups of them. And then when that gets to be too much, then I'll go ahead and extract out a whole service and just have the, the two services talk to each other. At some point they have a completely distinct purpose. So things do grow that way, I think. And I just feel like if I can't test it, then it's got to move find a way to move it someplace where it's more testable. And then it starts to make sense, too, in my head of, oh, that's a reasonable chunk of code. The abstraction is reasonable enough. I can explain that to the next person fairly quickly.
2: Yeah, Uh, and I think you nailed it, David. This one time I had a method that was 600 lines long. (laughs) It was a behemoth. Like uh, it was in my earlier days over
0: here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, it was so horrible, and any change, even though there were some tests, any change broke the test, no matter what. It was guaranteed, uh, and it, it was absolutely horrible, so I ended up refactoring it, but in the process of refactoring it, uh, each method was maybe 20 lines of code, but then I had 1,000 lines of code. Mm-hmm. But the thing is about that, even though I grew the complexity as far as uh, the number of lines of code in that particular class, I reduced the complexity of being able to read it, maintain it, manage it, and be able to add new features. So overall, I think it was a positive uh, refactor, and while still getting the same result, you know most importantly, but, it reduced the complexity, even though adding some other complexity. So, I think it's, it, it is a give and take. If you're extracting things over to a different folder, then you lose visibility because now you have to go open up a different file to see what's in there. You know, what are my links or associations or validations? So, it's a give and take on what's going to be your uh-huh. best bang for the buck. When I open the file and I look at it, what's the most important thing for me to see? Is it the validations? In that case, keep the validations in that file and extract something else.
0: Yeah, I, I guess what I'm driving at here, though, is because I agree with you. I agree with both of you on kind of the way that code grows and the ways, you know, the, the techniques that you're using to manage this stuff. But what what I generally want is I want something that's going to actually get in my face when I violate it, Right. So I want a tool that's going to say, hey, your, you know, you your your six hundred uh line method is bad, right? Go fix it. Or your class is getting rather long. Do you want to take the next step and start breaking out responsibilities? Um, you know, and I've seen like Code Climate does this and some, you know, there there are a few other tools. There are some gems that, you know, they run the complexity uh things and you know, things like that. Um, you know, or maybe you do have a rule of thumb where it's like, look, you know, testing, this is really hairy or maybe, you know, we have frequent breakages on the test. And so if, if the test fails on it, you know, after, you know, three consecutive changes or something, but, but, you know, I want something, I want something that's tracking all this and at the end of the day going, Hey Chuck, you, you did something kind of dumb or Hey Chuck, you, you, you went in and you made it work, but. You probably weren't thinking about this particular aspect of things, and and then make me do it. So, I mean, are there are there things that you do to enforce this, or to give you cues, or do you just kind of have to program your own head to go, oh, this was a pain to test, or you know, I updated this test and it was a pain to test, and and this is these are the kinds of situations that make me want to refactor it out.
2: Yeah, and I think you can do that with Robo Rubic- uh, RuboCop. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you need to, you can create your own uh, custom method uh, that's a validator for it. So whenever you commit your code or something, if you had something like code climate reading that YAML file or whatever, then it's going to be able to pick those things up and, you know, fail the code. Right.
1: And one thing I, I find about RuboCop, it's interesting, is, is it's, it's kind of a whole other thing, right? Like I can work on code and have an idea of what I want to do or what I want to train somebody. But if I'm going to start to enforce my ideas with a linter, now it's a collaborative decision-making process. Now it's, let's finish this agile process and talk about things Mm -hmm. and work together. Because now I'm really saying, hey, (laughs) I'm going to stretch my thoughts into your your editor. And uh, I'm in the way. And, and, And I know that that can go really, really wrong sometimes when somebody said, hey, you know what? I won't allow you know, a method longer. I, I was at another conference once where somebody said he will not accept any code that has more than five lines in it. That was his hard and fast <laughs> rule, and he preferred three, you know, <laughs> to mm-hmm. find something, end it, one-liners. And um, he was a real tyrant, it seems. Uh, people in the room, he, he told that to the room, and a lot of people, you know, Well, the whispering near my table was, I'm glad I don't work for that guy. (laughs) His intention is he wanted clarity. But once we start enforcing our best intentions on somebody else's thought process, we better have a relationship with them and a a conversation.
0: Well, and the thing that I'm getting from what you're saying is, you know, he wanted clarity and and he defined the standard for clarity. Right. Because we have this ideal. Right. It's clarity. It's maintainability. It's it's clean code it's testability and then we define it down to three you know three line methods or five line methods and that's not always the same thing but i don't know that we always have a good surrogate for those things either right that we can actually read test and enforce
1: yeah plus we're introducing a whole nother thing if i just say i want to have a smaller things now I have to think more about interfaces Mm -hmm. and you know what the um, what the the calls really data types there's a lot of other problems to solve once I start to break it out
2: not only that but I think you know in that case uh, we have a misinterpretation of what Sandy Matt said so I love a lot that Sandy Metz does. And I think that she has brought a lot of great practices to the Ruby community. However, I think that what people do is they're like, oh, Sandy Metz said this. We have to do this. you are know, like, <laughs> what would Sandy Metz do? Like, it is now the law. And that's where people get into trouble. It's that they're not understanding what she meant. She didn't say you have to keep your methods five lines or less she said that as a concept of don't have 600 line methods because you're not going to be able to maintain it. So aim for five. If you have to go to six, if you have to go to 20, you know what, that's okay <laughs> in my book. No, it's okay. Yeah, Don't make I felt- it 600.
0: I, I use it as a breakpoint, right? So it's, oh, I've got a six or seven line method here. Do I need it to be six or seven lines? Do I need to break it up? Or is it clearer this way? And at least then I, I have the mental conversation with myself and I make a decision on it instead of just letting it kind of, oh, well, now it's now it's 10 lines. Well, now it's 15 lines. Now it's got, you know, a switch statement and two if statements in it, you know, and so it's getting more and more complex, you know, it just, oh, this is a longer method. I need to at least, you know, kind of trigger that breakpoint in my head to go, why or what? and that way I can come back to it and go okay this needs to change before it becomes really hard to change cuz I can imagine a 600 line method is a real pain to refactor <laughs> but a <laughs> yeah. 20 line method if I break that up into two or three shorter methods is a whole lot easier to to deal with and so if I can yeah. catch it before it gets too large or too crazy you know that's that's where these rules come in But sometimes I need to, you know, I'm, I'm so sucked into the problem that I'm not thinking about the code, if that makes sense. As a developer, you love building things that are fun and that matter. Me too. Do you want to add authentication to yet another app? Do you want to stay updated with all the security issues and patch them? Why not leave it to the experts? Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with either regular username and password, social identity providers like Facebook and Twitter, or enterprise identity providers like Active Directory, Office 365, etc., or without passwords with an email login like Slack or phone login like WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Add authentication to your Ruby app or Rails app, Sinatra, and others in less than 10 minutes by writing only a few lines of code, no credit card required. Get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at Auth0.io slash rubyrogues. That's the number zero in Auth0. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Bluetooth, Optimizely, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Try it out at Auth0.io slash rubyrogues. Remember, that's the number zero in Auth0. And get back time building core features.
1: Oh, yeah. Just think about the i'm just dave i'm just thinking what it was felt like to write 600 line method i mean you were in that problem Mm -hmm. you know and then to be yanked around and say wait a minute i've just been thinking through 100 different things and now i've got to think about 100 more different things to to refactor this and clean it up that's a
2: that's a tough thing
1: yeah there's another oh go ahead
2: no, and it actually wasn't too difficult to refactor because I knew what my entry point was and I knew what the return was. So I just deleted everything and rewrote the file. Yeah. You know, rewrote it and made sure that I got the exact same results that I was previously. And you know, from that standpoint, it wasn't too bad. But generally, my limit is uh 40 lines. Mm-hmm. And If I find that I'm doing duplication within that one method, then I extract those duplications out into a separate method and that 40 line becomes, you know, 20 or something. So that's kind of like my standard or my rule of thumb on things is that duplication is bad from some standpoints where if you make one change in one file, then you had to go to these other three files to make the same changes or uh, mm-hmm. to these other three parts of the method to make changes. And that's where you start getting yourself into trouble because you remember it today to make those changes in multiple places. You're not going to remember it in the, uh, the tomorrow whenever you're going back to that file. You know, unless if you have a really good memory, but the next developer who touches it will not.
0: Oh, I'm kind of dumb, so the tomorrow is literally tomorrow. I won't remember. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that that totally makes sense. Um, one thing that you said kind of reminded me of a talk by Katrina Owen, or it's called thera- therapeutic refactoring, and she gave it you know several years ago. But yeah, you know, you test, you put the inputs in, you know what the output should be, and then you can write those characterization tests around it and then you can, you know, start to break out the problems. Make sure you're still getting the same result as you test the other pieces as you write them. So, you know, a lot of positive things there, but yeah, it's it it's interesting and and I think, you know, just talking about this, you know, I I feel a little bit of conflict over where each of us have our line, you know, it's, it's not conflict in the sense that we're angry with each other, but w- we all have different opinions, right? And we have our video on and I can see a little bit of body language, you, you know, where somebody says five lines and somebody else looks a little uncomfortable with that, you know? And so Dave says 40 lines and I'm <laughs> sitting here going 40 lines is a really long method, right? And I, I mean, that, that's where a lot of this comes in is you know what the the amount of complexity i want to hold in my head typically 40 lines is way too much and you know and so if dave and i are working on the same bit of code then maybe we do need to bring that down a little bit just so that everybody's happy working in it but if dave's working on his own project or he's working with a bunch of people where their line is 100 lines of code. I mean, again, you have to have that conversation. But once you have it and once you know where the line is and you maybe you experiment with it a little bit, y- you can really figure out, OK, I don't have to think about this anymore because if I go over what we agreed on, I'm going to get prompted to change it.
1: And one thing I've noticed, I like that. Uh, and one thing I've noticed, too, just beyond getting to that level for myself is in in healthy teams, there's a lot of during code review or, you know, pull requests, there's a lot of either bragging or complaining about our own code. And, and what we're actually doing there is we're talking gently about the standards we like or hate and finding ways to adjust them, you know, several times a day or throughout the week. Um, so that healthy dialogue of, okay, yeah, I, I wrote this. Let me tell you, I wrote this it's starting to get a little long on the method. You know, we're, we're picking on particular things, but that that is a very common thing. Yeah, it's starting to get along here. I'm not really sure about that. And then we get into standards conversations without it getting too heavy or too long. Mm-hmm.
0: So one thing I'm curious about now that we've kind of hit a lull is a lot of the code that I do is just me, right? Um, you know, I'm working on some stuff around podcasting and podcast sponsorships. I'm probably going to, uh, pulling a couple of, I don't even want to say beta, like alpha minus minus users on on this software, right? But as I'm building it, I, I'm, I'm curious, should I be setting up some of these standards, RuboCop, MetricFu, I mean, whatever's out there, right? Uh, should Should I be running that stuff now as as I build it out, even though it's just me?
1: I would say yes-ish, and this is why. And I would have said no a month ago. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've had a project like that, that, that started to go funky on me. And so what I've noticed is that when it's my own project, I'm a little more lax with myself. I know what I'm doing. Nobody else is going to care. It does its job, but I've got a project that I haven't touched in a few months and it needs a, a few smaller refactors. And day after day, I just look at that and I don't get to it. And, um, and so there's gotta be some, future me that needs to come back and, and wring my neck a little bit and say, yeah, you don't have to do everything here. But I would say some things, you know, I, there, there is a point where a project will cross the line and it just becomes uh, a pain to maintain. It's very maintainable. Mm-hmm. I understand it. I just don't want to. And um, that's a line that I don't think I want to cross again. Um, right. I think that's too expensive to try to come back and force myself to do what I don't want to do. Mm hmm.
0: How about you, Dave? I know you work on some uh, projects on your own. I think you mentioned a budgeting app or something on some episodes.
2: Yeah. So um, I don't like using uh, Rubicop or Linters and stuff, just because they usually are more distracting. <laughs> Probably because I don't have good standards. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the code I write, you know, my main thing is make it readable you know, make it to where when I do come back to it, that I'm going to be able to understand it, or at least with a minimal amount of time, be able to touch it. And one thing I started doing, which I didn't do even a year ago, is I started thinking, you know, uh, having someone over my shoulder watching me, just having that invisible person watching me and have them like cast their judgment on what I'm writing. Like, you know, would that person say like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Or they say, you know what? That's good enough. You know, that, that can be readable. And I think that's kind of where we need to get to is where it's good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect, but if you're able to read it today, if you're able to read it tomorrow and if it's not introducing a lot of, techni- if it's not introducing technical debt, then that's good enough because your primary focus and you're not getting paid to write beautiful code, you're getting paid to write something that works. And I think a lot of times um, if you do have too many standards, you lose focus on that. You know, your productivity, your throughput goes way down because you're having to conform to these standards. Mm-hmm. So I think it's mostly, you know, how how quickly can you get it done correctly?
1: I think there's a, another facet to that as well, which um, is for me easy to overlook. You know, I, I tend to be senior on any any team I'm on, and so usually if I have a standard I want, I usually get it. But there's um, it, it makes it hard to be inclusive. You know, if somebody new is coming on board or it's just done this way and if there's a few of these things, that's fine. But if there's a lot of these things, um, the new people really feel left out. They feel like they can't get it all or they can't wrap their mind around all the things that are being asked. And then it becomes a little bit more combative or a little bit more um, difficult. And I, especially if we're thinking about inclusivity, you know, I, I've got some people I really want to work with on some projects, but they don't have a lot of experience. And I'm trying to figure out what's in the way to bring these people into the projects. And some of it is this kind of thing. It's like, yeah, we wrote all this code and we had all these standards and there's 10,000 rules they need to know before they can write line one. And it just is not a, a very easy project to bring somebody into.
2: Absolutely. And especially if it's a large project, because now, you know, number one, they're overwhelmed by the size of the project and mm-hmm. all the different intricacies in it. Now you're enforcing all these standards that they're going to have to, you know, do as well. I mean, yep. I'm not saying that you're by no means by any stretch of the match age. I am saying that, you know, you should just write sloppy code just because you're afraid you might hurt someone's feelings. <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, but, you know we do have to draw a line somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, for me, I put my line at 40, 40 lines of code. You know, that's kind of where I draw my line that, Hey, anything else, it's not maintainable. That's why I have that limit. I don't strive for 40 lines. I try to make sure that my code is under 40 lines each method.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It- One thing that, uh I just wanna bring up too is that uh you know Dave mentioned all of the you know maybe you have a lot of rules um I've seen people put them into style guides, and that that's also mental overhead right because then you have to go and you have to look at the style guide to make sure that you're doing it right and so yeah it it is it's it's a lot to know and there's a lot to know in here's how we work and here there's a lot to know as in you know. How this is how everything goes together to get the job done.
1: I think that uh, Thoughtbot did a a nice happy median where they said uh, they wrote a playbook and they just described how they like to do things and why it matters. Um, and it's short enough somebody could read that as they're coming onto a project or a team and get it. And um, so I like that idea. Hey, these are our plays. This is our playbook. Mm-hmm. This works. And then, um, hey, come, come bring what you are <laughs> to the team, you know, and that seems to come up for me, at least I've noticed sometimes we have a clash of the titans on a project where you have strong personalities, senior developers, you know, where um, there's one right way to do things. And so if we have a playbook, you know, or we have general principles we're after, we can have conversations and and come up with something a little bit easier instead of trying to say, yep, these are the. 500 practices that absolutely must be, or it's a terrible project.
2: And, you know, I was talking with our develop, one of our other developers about something where, you know, I kind of saw what they were doing and, you know, I went and corrected them. And this is kind of one of my pet peeves is that uh, we shouldn't break the uh, convention over configuration if possible. So there was a element that he had on the screen that wasn't aligning correctly. You know, it's kind of off centered and it wasn't aligned correctly. So he threw a class onto there and then he went into the CSS and then messed around with the CSS to get it to where it's going to look correctly. And I saw that. I'm like, that's not right. Because, you know, while you did get the issue fixed, you just added technical debt to there Mm -hmm. because now we have this class. If we ever need to change our overall look and feel, it's not going to look right. You know, he just, uh, we were using Bootstrap on the project and Bootstrap had a method or a class that you could just add in there that would have aligned things correctly. And, you know, so I showed him that and showed him, you know, here's why we want to do it. And, you know, here's what would happen if we left this in here. If we were to move to Bootstrap 4 or something, We would then have to remember to go back to that one piece of code to fix that class as well. So I think that uh, we have to absolutely have our standards of what we think are acceptable, but not to make them too unrealistic or too overwhelming to where... You bring a new person on; they have to worry about the project. They have to the sides of the project. They have to worry about your style guidelines, and they have to work with their, you know, deal with their confidence of pushing up code to a bunch of seasoned people on that project. It's intimidating. So, uh, I think you know having a onboarding guide or something that's you know. Kind of short and concise to have the architectural layout of the standards of if you have these kind of things, here's where they go. Have your style guidelines of here's um, like your literal style, your CSS style guidelines. You know, try not to create a class with its own custom styling because we're going to then have to maintain it. Here's what projects or Mm -hmm. here's the um, frameworks we're using. You should be able to fit within those guidelines of that framework to get your styling done, you know, st- stuff like that.
1: And I like that if, if you're doing it that way, the way you're describing Dave, what you're doing is you're maximizing the individual. You're saying, Hey, you know, let's make this as easy as we can for you to contribute and be part of this. And you know, if part of that culture is, Hey, you got that one a little bit off, let's fix this. Um, but we like your code, we like your thinking, then it's a lot easier to just keep norm, you know, norming together. Uh, coming together and and seeing it together.
0: Now, occasionally, though, um, while you're norming together, so to speak, um, I mean, you're going to run into things where somebody, you know, just absolutely disagrees. You know, they, for whatever reason, you know, it's like, no, this is an exception or, you know what, this is just better. I mean, how do you, how do you handle those conflicts so that, you know, things still conform? Because I don't feel like, and this is something that I've run into more in business, I guess, than in programming. But I've seen it in programming too, where it's, you know, what I, I just, you know, it has to be done the way that we do things, and you know, somebody's not going to be happy about that. So, so how do you, how do you press the issue, or do you, you know, if it's not important, you know,
1: how far can you give in? I, I I'll tell you, <laughs> quick story. I'll, I'll see if I can anonymize it enough that I won't embarrass anybody. I had an experience once where we had that, where somebody said, it's got to be this way. And um, my go-to on that is, okay, convince me, show me, uh, and I'll ask specific questions and I'll I'll, I'll let them have their case. And, and they were just for it, but it flustered them because what was going on was they felt like they knew a better way, but they weren't prepared at that time. So it turned into a really heated argument. And, um, we, we cut it off after a couple minutes, we realized how bad this was getting, you know, we really was not going to work. And so we went to our corners. <laughs> I, I uh, complained a little bit. He did too. And then we came back together later after he had time to think and I had time to think and, and, and figured it out. I mean, we, at the end of the day, we had to grow up a little bit and say, all right, I understand that you didn't have on the top of your head, a ideas that you know you haven't touched in the air so when you get a chance Mm -hmm. let's think about it and come explain to me what you think and then i'll talk to you about it from the perspective of the project and we'll come up with a plan together what's best for the project you know and it took that moment of okay we don't agree on a standard and we don't agree on even almost anything right now our whole worldviews are completely different but what we're going to do is find a way to have that conversation it's an important one this one changes Mm -hmm. everything um, but yeah, it almost, I mean, it didn't come to blows, but I could imagine myself <laughs> trying to take it down. You know, it gets really heated really fast sometimes. You know, and I, I i tend to be passionate about my work, but not like aggressive, I hope, about my work. But that got that way when it's standards. And I think it has something to do with confidence and contribution and risks that we have in the project and whatever else is going on. But But yeah, that I thought at the end of the day, I count that person as a good friend of mine. And at the end of the day, we actually came up with a really good solution, but it did take a few rounds of, okay, let, let me reaffirm to you that what matters is the project. And I want to hear what you want to say. And he did the same for me and we figured it out and we came up with a good solution.
0: I think that's really interesting too, that you, I mean, you, you started from the place of the, we care about the project. We want it to succeed. And and things like that. And, you know, in a lot of the political dialogue that we see these days, right, it's well, those people, they just they care more about this than bad things happening to people. Right. And when it comes right down to it, a lot of these issues, I mean, if you get to the core of things, neither group wants bad things to happen to people. They just have a different perspective on how you get there. And, you know, yeah, once you start having that conversation, which is, you know, yeah. So we don't want bad things to happen to people. Um, you know, and and here are the problems I see with your solution, and these are the problems you see with mine. You may not come to a compromise that anybody's really happy with, but at least you can come to the place where you understand each other and you know you you can get a lot of this together and and you know, be friends at the end of the day. And and I think it's important, you know, even though essentially somebody's gonna have to overrule somebody else. You know, you're coming from the place of, "Hey, look, we're trying to succeed here. We're trying to get things done. We're trying to make the project as as easy to maintain, or you know, as clear to work on, or whatever it is that we've set as a value as possible." And we we know that our tools are imperfect and our communications imperfect, so we're just going to get do, get the best we can.
1: And I think it it helps in situations like this to keep in mind, you know, well, what game are we playing? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a uh, if it's a zero sum game, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. Right. But if it's a positive sum game, hey, how do we find a way that we both win? Mm-hmm. And, and if we cannot, absolutely cannot find a way where we can both win, like, you know, all right, somebody's got to lose, but let's do it in a way that somebody doesn't have to lose face maybe. You know, <laughs> if it has to be one or the other, you know, you can't have a baseball game. Every time somebody comes up to bat, somebody wins, somebody loses. That's yeah. the game. Sometimes that's okay. But you know, it's a game. We have fun. And, and I don't know, in software, if, if winning and losing gets too caustic, it, it tends to, I think that the ugly face of that tends to be that the older, more senior people win, the junior people move on and go get paid more somewhere else. And that just breaks things up. So they try not to get to that point is good too. Yep.
2: And you know Something I've learned in life, even though someone is presenting what is just truly a bad idea, there is positive and some good things that can be taken out of it. So a lot of that has to do even though you are right, you are the senior person, you can just play the trump card and you're going to win no matter what. But if you stay close minded, even though you are correct, to not see the positives of what they are trying to bring, either what their way of thinking is that led them to that solution, or maybe just a couple old tidbits of that solution, then you're closing yourself off uh, to growing as well. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I think that, you know, then you have no winners. You have a junior who's mad. You have the senior who is now just, you know, um, kind of repetitively doing the work not growing and you're going to have losers all around so i think that even in the case where there is a loser there is a winner everyone can benefit if you are approaching it humbly and if you are keeping an open mind to the situation and if you react to it correctly or well
1: Mm-hmm. absolutely it's, it's interesting to me that we're talking about this because this is important and it comes up a lot in, in every project I've been on. Um, but I've got this friend that works in a company and they have a lot of women that work on the teams. And he, he keeps telling me that they don't have these problems. You know, he's a senior dev and he's been around a long time. He says, Dave, you wouldn't believe, I mean, we're nice to each other. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing that you know, we, we create problems and I'm not saying that, that hiring women is the, the whole solution to that thing, but it seems like that's one of the positive benefits of having a more diverse or a more interesting team is that every single conversation gets to be more open and inclusive. We get to be aware of what we're saying and not just bulldoze each other. Um, so anyway, that was something I've heard at least 10 times from a friend of mine that he's really, really happy where he's working and for that reason. Yeah, I have a
0: theory that, um, you know, because we, we keep seeing more studies come out that show that more diverse teams tend to be more productive and, you know, produce better. And I don't know that it's because any one group is necessarily better at anything else, but it forces you to confront some of these issues, right? And so you, then what winds up happening is is you only go out and fight for the things that really matter, you know? Yeah. And, and you learn to communicate about the things that are different in your backgrounds. And I, I think a lot of those things really kind of come to play in that. But the other thing is, is that then because you have such diverse backgrounds, yeah, somebody's going to come out with an idea that you would have never dreamed up because they just come from a different place in life. And, you know, that that's a good thing. You know, I think a lot of times we see people talking about diversity and they're trying to make everybody the same automaton and it just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, you're hiring those people because of who they are. And what they what they uh, have to offer and and that's that's the interesting part of the whole thing you know it's not treating everybody the same it's treating everybody the way they want to be treated, and then you know bringing that in and making it a strength
2: yeah yeah uh, yeah, I agree with both y'all you know from one perspective as a parent, you know having my son just had his third birthday, so I have a four year old three year old and a one year old and each one of them requires a different type of discipline. And if I were to give them the exact same discipline for the, quote, crime committed, then one would just have taken it so poorly and it would have just destroyed them. Whereas the other one would have learned from it and, became a better person for it. So I think that that kind of diversity we really need not from a punishment standpoint but just from the perspectives that you guys are talking about. You know because I get really tunnel vision in what I'm working on whether it's a feature or fixing a problem and I you know try to think of it from different perspectives but I don't have that visibility always because I'm too connected to the issue. You know, I'm in there working on it. I don't have that visibility from the outside perspective that a QA person would have or that someone else would have that I need them to be on my team. I need their input. And I think as a developer or someone, you know, some kind of artist, uh, in a lot of ways what we're doing is art with our code, to get that criticism, uh, I think that, you know, on ourselves, we have to make sure that we're open to take it, you know, because um, I remember, you know, uh, when I was younger drawing something and I was a horrible artist, not good by any stretch of the imagination, but someone would give me criticism, like, that doesn't look right. You no, know, that face looks really messed up or wrong. The perspectives are wrong. And I, I was greatly offended. I'm like, this is the best that I could do. I had the wrong mindset. I had the wrong state of mind. They were trying to help me to grow me and I wasn't open to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I still suck at art today. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) we just had to uh, keep an open mind to others' perspectives.
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I love that the ethos of uh, Ruby is to create happy, happy developers. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah. And we're here partly because it, we matter and, and our contribution matters and learning how to make that matters. Yep, absolutely. So
0: um, we've been talking for about an hour. Is there anything else that's kind of critical to this conversation that we haven't hit?
2: I'm liking this conversation. I know. We could almost do a part two on it, I think.
0: Yeah, probably. Hey, it's Thanksgiving <laughs> break. Let's just stay here all day. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right. Well, you know, maybe we'll think about revisiting it. If listeners have ideas as far as, hey, I really like your conversation. I want to hear what you think about this or that. Or, you know, you have some other idea for, you know, how we can dig into this a little bit further. um, By all means, leave a comment on the show notes. Um, You can also, if you go to devchat.tv at the very top, uh, there's a link to Patreon. And if you contribute to Patreon, um, it'll tell you how to get into our Slack chat for devchat.tv and um anyway so you can jump in there and you can also let us know there um i have decided to shut down the ruby rogues parlay slack and just move everybody over to devchat because i've got multiple people who are in different several of the slacks and then you know in, in one or two of them there's not enough conversation going on to really make it worth it And so I feel like the wider audience will make that worth it. That's just kind of a weird public service announcement. But uh, let us know. Uh, Let us know if you have other thoughts on this. Because, I mean, everybody has different perspectives and experience. And there's probably something that we just didn't think about that will benefit other folks. So, uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and do picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus FreshBooks is offering a 30 day trial. That's right. 30 day trial. If you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com devchat dev chat and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us?" section. Once again, for a 30 day trial, Go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. I was going to say, Dave, do you want to go first? But that doesn't help here. Uh, (laughs) So uh, Dave Kimura, do you want to start us with picks?
2: Oh, geez. I thought you were going to say David. Well, I can't remember what I picked last week. But one thing that I've been super happy with is Sentry.io for bug tracking and Mm -hmm. error tracking. Uh, there were some gaps in some some of my products that I just never knew about. Users never reported. And then I started getting the error messages through Sentry. I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, that's a simple fix. I can get that fixed. And I just never would have known if I hadn't uh, used that software. So super impressed with it.
0: Nice. Uh, David, what are your picks?
1: Yeah, so I have two today. Um, The first one is just appropriate for our conversation. I I went ahead and picked ThoughtPot's playbook. So you can read over that. I like it, but you can at least have an opinion about that, about how they handle some of these same things. And uh, my other one is another book. It's A Spy's Guide to Strategy. Now, I'm going to warn you, this prose is terrible. This guy is annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But he's this ex-CIA agent that talks about what it's like in the field. And he's talking about how to create win-win games and what kind of games are we playing and how do you, how do you handle things. And I found it really fascinating. And it's an easy read. Um, and it's his second book in a series. He's writing at least three. The first one is A Spy's Guide to Thinking, A Spy's Guide to Strategy, A Spy's Guide to Negotiations. And so it's just a way to how he worked as a CIA agent. It was good. It was a good read. Nice. Um,
0: I've kind of been dealing with a few things here that I've been playing with. Um, one is, as I mentioned before, I've been working in the area of, you know, building some software for podcasters and, um, it's just been really, really interesting. Um, one of the things that I'm going to just pick that's not really like a linkable buyable pick. Um, so Eric, who's on this show. And, uh, Nate Hopkins, who's, uh, who I've been trying to get on this show forever. Um, Nate was somebody that I worked with very early in my career. He was actually a mentor to me for the first year of my, uh, programming career. He, um, anyway, I got together with them and just had a chat about this software and, you know, they kind of helped me re-architect a lot of stuff. And so, you know, even though I'm quote unquote a senior guy, I talk to other people who have more experience in these particular areas. And, you know, it really paid off. So um, I'm, I'm definitely going to pick just getting a second opinion and, you know, just just figuring a lot of that out. And then the other thing that I'm going to talk about here real quick is um, I've been looking to delegate some stuff. And uh, so I just hired somebody on Upwork to do like a week's worth of work for me. Uh, upwork.com used to be Odesk. Um, I think they also bought Elance. So anyway, um, if you're looking for people to kind of get some basic stuff done for you, that's a great place to go. Um, You know, they're doing some WordPress setup for me and some outreach stuff for me. So uh, anyway, um, I'm using a tool called Pipedrive to do my outreach these days, and I'm really liking it. So I'll pick that. And then um, I'll throw in one last pick for I've Been Listening to The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson again. Um, And that's because the uh, third book in the series, Oathbringer, I think it's called, just came out and so i'm listening to the whole series again because i started listening to it and i'm like what's going on again so anyway um yeah so those are my picks uh we'll have links to all that in the show notes uh thank you guys for coming
2: yeah talk to you later
0: yeah have a great thanksgiving i know that this will come out after thanksgiving but have a great thanksgiving uh or uh christmas as this comes out and we'll talk to you all next week all right bye bye bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn